Uh, Habakkuk is a minor prophet, not because his message is minor, but because it's just a smaller book than the large books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and those that are considered to be um, major prophets. So we come to the final chapter this morning, chapter 3, but um, let's just review a little bit of where we've been uh, in chapters 1 and 2. Basically, chapter 1 begins with questions from a frustrated and confused prophet. Here's a man called by God to be his messenger, but he doesn't understand what God is doing or what it appears that God is not doing. And so he is frustrated. He has filled with questions like, how long, O Lord? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will these things go on? How long will evil triumph over good? How long will the wicked seem to prosper and those who are righteous seem to suffer? Uh, how long will good be called evil and evil called good? And so he he is crying out to God with his questions. He's lamenting the situation of his life and what he sees going on in Judah, <clears throat> the uh, part of Israel that he's a part of. And uh, he's just wondering, Lord, what is going on? I know that you're holy. I know that you have a purpose. But as I look around, it doesn't really seem like you're doing a whole lot. Well, then in chapter 2, God answers him. Um, Habakkuk is, is standing in his watchtower, and God then speaks to him. God gives him an answer to the questions that he has. Maybe not every question is answered, but the thrust of what he is struggling with is answered by God. And God basically says, Habakkuk, I am God, you are not, I see things you don't see, and I'm working behind the scenes. I'm doing things that you would not even be able to comprehend if I showed them to you. I am up to something that will blow your mind, is what God basically says to the prophet. And and he says, I'm going to use wicked Babylon to chastise my people because I love my people. And I want them to be sanctified. So, so don't worry, prophet. No one is going to get away with anything. Because one of the things that the prophet was struggling with was, Lord, it doesn't make sense to me. I know that your people are wicked. We, Judah, we're guilty of a lot of sins. But how can you, being a holy God, use Babylon, a kingdom that is more wicked than we are, to judge us? And so God says, well, I'm going to use them. I've raised them up for that purpose. I will punish them, and I'll use them to judge my people, to purify my people, and to bring them to repentance. And what you need to concentrate on, Habakkuk, is learning to live by faith. You need to understand that the righteous shall live by faith. And so then chapter 2 ends with this statement, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, humbly bow before the sovereign king. Take all of your questions, all of your confusions, all of your frustrations, and bring them to the Lord who knows and understands and is trustworthy. Humbly bow before him. Don't wait for him to humble you. You humble yourself 
by bringing yourself under his kingship. Well, that leads us then to chapter 3, where the prophet is basically humbled. Habakkuk is humbled, and now he's ready to listen. He's, he's heard the message that God has delivered to him. He's meditated on it. He has been keeping silent before the king, letting the truth of God sink in during that time of silence. But now he voices praise to God, which is what chapter 3 is. So here's the big idea from chapter 3. God is fully trustworthy and unlimited in power, and therefore he is our only hope. As Habakkuk has sat in silence before the sovereign king, and he has thought about the answers that God gave to his questions, he comes to this conclusion. God is our only hope. But understand this, that God is fully trustworthy. He is unlimited in power. So even when you don't understand what he's doing behind the scenes, understand that he is trustworthy. Even when it looks as though he's doing nothing about the problems in this world or your own troubles, understand that he has unlimited power. And because of that, because he is trustworthy, because he's unlimited in power, you can hope in him. In fact, he's your only hope. There is hope nowhere else except in this trustworthy, unlimited in power God. So chapter 3 begins with these words, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Well, Shigianoth uh, is probably not a name you want to consider for one of your children, but it means a musical notation. That's what it is. It's a musical notation. And so the, the chapter begins with a musical notation, and then if you look at verse 19, you see that it ends with a musical inscription to the choir master with stringed instruments. So not only is chapter 3 a prayer but it is a musical prayer. It is a song of praise to God. It's like those songs that we sing together. And if you're new to the Bible, you might be surprised to understand that the Bible is an extremely musical book. From beginning to end, it is filled with music. Why? Because God is a musical God. In fact, the, one of the Old Testament prophets says that God sings over his people. God is the one who created music. And he is glorified through music. And that's why he places throughout the scriptures such a high priority on music, especially for us as God's people and when we gather together to worship him. So the prophet is responding to God with a song. And in this song, we see an example of faith in action. It's an example of how a righteous person lives by faith. Well, this morning, the Holy Spirit wants you to think about four actions that grow out of God-centered faith. Number one, Reverence the Lord while praying for merciful judgment. Look at the first two verses. 
O Lord, verse 2, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So what we see here is that hearing reports of the mighty works of God results in reverence and awe. He says, I fear. I've heard the reports of your work and all that you do and all that you have done. And I fear, I reverence you. And yet it also brings the prophet hope. Hope that God will once again work, that God will work on behalf of his people, that God will revive his people. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In other words, Lord, what you have done in the past, would you please do it again? He longs for God to revive his work among his people as the time for judgment draws near. So as he sees God building up the, the kingdom of Babylon in order to be used as an instrument of judgment on his own people, the prophet says, Oh, Lord, as you're doing that, would you be also working in the hearts of your people? Would you be reviving your people? And that's what we should be praying for. We should be praying for the revival of God's people the revival of the church. As we see what God is doing throughout the world, we should say, Lord, please do these mighty works again that we've seen you do in the past and revive your church. Because we see here a pattern of revival. That is that God's people respond to his discipline by repenting and getting right with him and others. That's the, that's the pattern we see in Scripture. When God truly brings a believer to the place of revival, he repents. She repents. She gets right with God. He gets right with God. There is, among all of God's people, a moving of the Spirit to humble us, to bring us to a place where we recognize how desperately we need the Lord. And then notice how he counts on the Lord to maintain his character. He counts on the Lord to be just and gracious at the same time. Look at the way he ends verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, as you are carrying out your wrath, on Babylon, and as you will be carrying out your wrath against your own people's sin, remember mercy. And this is such a beautiful picture of God, that, that what we see in Scripture is that when God disciplines his people, he never leaves out mercy. He's not this angry, out-of-control tyrant but toward his people. He's a loving father who disciplines us. He corrects us, but he does it with mercy. So when we suffer the consequences of our own disobedience, we can be confident that God will discipline us. But that is not a demonstration of his angry hatred toward us. 
that is actually proof that he loves us. It's proof that we have a relationship with him. He doesn't relate to us as believers as a wrathful tyrant, but as a corrective father. He's always working to bring us back into fellowship with him so that we will enjoy the blessings of walking with him. In wrath, he says, remember mercy. There's a second action of God-centered faith. And this takes up most of the rest of the chapter, so we'll move through it rather speedily. It's filled, again, with lots of details, historical details about how God has done his mighty work on behalf of his people in the past. And so the second action of God-centered faith is this, recount the saving works of the Lord. Recount the saving works of the Lord. So what happens here now in verse 3 is the prophet now pictures God as coming to act on behalf of his people like he did when, when he first made himself known to them in the wilderness, when he first rescued them from Egyptian bondage. Verse 3 begins like a victory chant, somewhat uh, like Psalm 68, which says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. The psalmist says, God will arise. He will arise and he will accomplish victory for his people. Verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Now you see this little word in the middle of verse 3, Selah or Selah, pronounced both ways. It means pause. It's a musical word. Pause, reflect. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Pause. Take a moment to think that God is rising up on behalf of his people. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. You see, a picture here of the spreading of God's glory which was made visible many times in the Old Testament as, as brightness, as a, as a light. And here, the prophet is saying that, that God, God himself is the center of his glory. And so when he glorifies himself, when he makes his glory known, it's like rays coming out from the center of the sun. Rays of splendor, rays of majesty, and brightness flashing from his hand. And yet the full weight of his glory, 
the full demonstration of his power is still veiled. If God were to unleash the fullness of his glory, we would cease to exist. We would be evaporated. And that's why when Moses prayed, God, show me your glory, how did God respond? God responded, okay, I want you to hide in the cleft of this rock so that just when I pass by, only with my backside, not even, not even the brightest display of my glory, you will not be consumed. And so what a beautiful picture that is of the Lord Jesus. We as believers, we come to Jesus, we hide in the cleft of the rock, and so the glory of God does not consume us. We are protected by God, from God, in Jesus. Verse 5, he talks about pestilence and plague going to work on God's behalf, bringing judgment to disobedient Israel as, as well as her enemies. We see this more than once in the Old Testament, and the book of Revelation also uses these terms to describe the wrath of God in the future. Verse 6, the prophet sings about the sovereignty of God over his creation. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. See, nature, all of nature, every part of earth, including the weather, bows to its sovereign creator. He stood and measured the earth. It's a way of saying that God is unlimited in power and sovereignty over every inch of what he has made. Psalm 114 says, When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. All of nature bows to the sovereignty of the Creator. And as a result, it says in verse 7, even the peoples who wander the earth are afraid. Verse 8. Here comes a really important question. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your demonstration of power and wrath against nature? Or was it against something else? Well, let's see. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, pause. God rising up like an archer, pulling arrows out of his quiver, ready to fire. Think about it. God rising up in power on behalf of his people. 
You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Verse 11 probably refers to that time when God caused the sun to stand still while Joshua needed more time to defeat his enemies. All of nature bows to the power and the authority of God. You marched through, verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. So was God's anger against the sea? Was it against the mountains? Was it against the rivers? No. All of creation bowed to the authority of God the judge as he was rising up to protect his people, to defeat their enemies. You went out, verse 13, why? For the salvation of your people. That's why you did these powerful works. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Pause. Think about it. God arising in power, unlimited power and authority to rescue his people. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Just more and more examples of God's judgment. His judgment of the wicked and his rescue of his people. This is how God works. It's how we work throughout the scriptures. He sees his people oppressed, even if they are sinning. He sees them being oppressed by their enemies, and he rises up and says, I will deliver you. So when you are troubled by the troubles of life, you need to recount the mighty works of God. You need to remember these ways that God has risen up for his people. Last week, we learned of how we are told in Romans 15 that all of Scripture is written for our benefit that we would learn from it, that we would learn from its examples, we would learn from its promises and from its warnings. So when you are troubled by the troubles of life, remember the mighty works of God. 
remember the great things that he has done. He has always dealt faithfully with his people. Always. So you need to look to him to rescue you, to deliver you, to save you. And there's a third action, God-centered faith in verse 16. Rest in the Lord's answer and timing while you wait. I hear, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will wait. Habakkuk received an answer to his prayer. That is, God will vindicate his righteousness and he will restore his people who are repentant. The judgment of God on his enemies is on its way and with it will come the chastisement of his people. And hearing this message and understanding it leads the prophet to being completely wiped out. Look at verse 16. My body trembles, my lips quiver. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble. He has no strength left. He's got no strength left in himself. And now he must rest in the Lord. And so he says, even though I have no strength left in me, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will wait, Lord, for you to judge your enemies. I will not take vengeance on my on my own. I will leave vengeance in the hands of you. And this is so very difficult for us to do when we are being attacked, isn't it? It's so difficult to leave judgment in the hands of the Lord. We so want to defend ourselves. It's, it's our nature to do this. And like Habakkuk, we need to learn to quietly wait. Quietly wait for the day of trouble to come. In other words, quietly wait for God to do what only he can do. So you need to remember that God here is promising to fight for you. He will fight for you. You can rest in him that he will do a better job fighting your enemies than you will. You can rest in his wisdom, his power, his might. You can rest in the Lord's answer to your prayers, believing that his timing is always spot on. Like we learned last week, God's timing is usually slower than ours. 
But it is never late. It's never late. And then there's a fourth and final action of God-centered faith. Rejoice in the Lord, not in circumstances. We come now to three of what I think are some of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. My wife and I have been strengthened by this divinely inspired poetry so many times over the years. As we've walked with the Lord through 36 years of marriage now, over 30 of them being in ministry, as we've sought to raise for Christ the 10 children that God gave to us, we so often find ourselves just spent, weak, no energy left within us. And yet we find God training us to trust him and to wait for him to act, to do what only he can do. There are so many times that these three verses have been my very lifeblood. Perhaps the end of this song has become precious to you as well over the years. Perhaps it's new to you. So if that's the case, I hope that it will become precious to you starting today. Look at what the prophet says, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk has just talked about how God is the Lord of creation. That all of creation is, is under his power and his control. He can make all of creation do whatever he wants it to do. And so perhaps this leads him to believe that all will be well with him and his people and that their needs will always be met. But life isn't that way, is it? Life just isn't that way. I mean, let's face it. It's easy to praise the Lord and have triumphant faith when all is going well. When everybody loves you and, and all your needs are met and, and there's no trouble that you can point your finger at in your life. But what, what about when provisions are not plenty? 
What about when your spiritual life feels like it has dried up? What about the prayer requests that you still have not seen answered, even after years of waiting, years of pleading with God? What about when your dreams and goals remain unfulfilled? I mean, what if verse 17 doesn't describe your food pantry, but it describes your, your life in general? What if it describes your marriage? What if it describes your physical health? What if it describes your, your parenting? What if it describes the loss that you have experienced? Then what? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What if whatever troubles you fits into verse 17? Then what? Yet I will rejoice. Not in circumstances, no. I will rejoice in the Lord. That is where I will find my joy. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So you see here, the prophet's God-centered faith leads him to rejoice in the Lord. And it can be that way for us too. No matter what troubles you, your joy must be rooted in the deepest, most profound demonstration of the love of God ever. In your salvation. In all that he did to accomplish your eternal salvation in giving his son, in watching his son endure 33 years of suffering at the hands of fallen sinful creatures that he made to be put to death by them so that he could conquer the grave, he could conquer the devil, he could conquer our sin. That's where we have to go. That has to be the deepest root of our joy. Like we sang earlier, if God is for us, who can be against us? Which is drawn right out of Romans chapter 8. So, Habakkuk is saying to us that our joy must be rooted in the deepest, most profound, most breathtaking, mighty work of God ever displayed. And that is our salvation. He is the Lord of our salvation. And that is the root of lasting joy. Joy and strength flow from the fountain 
of God-centered faith. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. Not in his circumstances changing. Not in God saying, well, I changed my mind. I'm not going to do that Babylon thing. His strength is found in God only. God the Lord is my strength. And then he he sings this verse that is so well understood by all those who would have first heard this book, living in mountainous regions and seeing the sure-footed deer just be able to leap and bound up mountains. I grew up in Wisconsin. I've seen a lot of deer in my life. Tried hunting some, but never hit one. My sons are much better aimed than I am. We see deer in our yard on occasion, a lot less than right here in the churchyard. (laughs) And you just watch them and how quickly they fly through the woods. Up, down, through, cross. Unbelievable. When the Lord is our strength, that's how stable and sure-footed we will be. He is the one who makes us endure. So when you are confused and weary, when you feel beaten up by life or by people who hate you, when there is no visible means for your needs to be provided for or your strength to be restored, Look to this God. Look to the one who alone is trustworthy and unlimited in power. And he will act on your behalf in his time. He alone is our only hope. God, the Lord, is our strength. Father, may this prayer of the prophet become ours. May we so look to you with simple, childlike, God-centered faith that we will be restored in hope when so many things look hopeless. We will be restored in strength when we feel as though we have no more strength to go on. That we will feel blessed and abundantly blessed with plenty because you know our needs and you promise to meet them. 
and we will grow in contentment with you as we trust you. Lord, the applications of this prayer, this song from the prophet are endless, limited only by the ways that we here today face trouble in this troubled world. So God, would you just turn our eyes to you and would you fill us with the promises of your word that we might have this same kind of God-centered faith that the prophet had. You are our strength, Lord. We look to you. And in you, we choose to rejoice. Through Christ we pray.